Our text this morning is chapter 34 of Genesis. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me found favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do this thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell in the land, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, 
all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the men, sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my father's household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would remind us that you, O Lord, are powerful and good, and that even when your people fall and fail, that you are ever faithful. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is a difficulty with consecutive expository preaching. That is, preaching through a book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And that is that eventually, in your reading, you come across passages like Genesis 34. Many of the commentaries that comment upon this make statements such as, well, I'm not really sure that any suitable sermon can be done from Genesis chapter 34. One commentator goes so far as to say that the solution here is that this can be taught in the context of a men's only Bible study. Why is something like this included in the Bible? Something that makes us uncomfortable. It's not as, as if it is a modern telling that is lurid with excessive detail. I dare say that many of us hear more offensive things on the radio in the afternoon or on commercials during a football game. But we don't expect the Bible to speak this way. The Bible is supposed to be, to be neat and uplifting and encouraging. Why would the Bible speak of such misery and sin and its effects? And I think it's because the Bible is true. And it is the Word of God. And the Lord God Himself seeks to protect His people from sin by describing it to them in all of its ugly detail. There is a phenomenon that is going on in the world today, especially in America. And it has been called in one sense, the big lie that we tell our children. The big lie that nothing bad will happen to you. That the world is a safe place. That you will be taken care of always. Just do what you're told and everything will be fine. 
And I think sometimes as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that kind of a view of Christianity. We think as long as we do all of the things that we are told, everything will turn out just fine. God will spare us from all of the effects of sin around us. But the reality is sin is always around us and sin is always with us because, as the saying goes, wherever you go, you are there. And we take sin with us. But this text this morning also shows us that there is a difference between how the world views sin and how we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, should view sin. And so I'd like us to look at three things briefly this morning. First, I would like us to see the danger of mingling with the world. That there is a real danger of mingling with the world. And then secondly, we will see the difference with the world that is shown. We will see a real difference between how the world views sin and its consequences and how others do. And then thirdly, lest we be too puffed up in our own pride, the Scripture shows us the deceitfulness of our own sin, the danger of mingling, the difference with the world, and the deceitfulness of our sin. Well, let's begin then by looking at the beginning of this chapter, or rather, I think, let's go back just a few verses into chapter 34, where it says in verse 18 that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. The first incidents that we see here, the context for this horrible story and all of the miserable things that happen is found there at the end of chapter 33. You see, the event that sets all things in place, the first domino to fall is when Jacob remains in Shechem. Now, at first glance, this does not seem like much of a problem. Jacob has come back from page. The Lord has protected him at every turn. He has blessed him with great wealth. He protected him from his father-in-law, Laban, who sought to undermine him and attack him. He met with Jacob himself at Peniel and reminded him that the Lord was Jacob's God. And he left him with two permanent reminders of that. First, with a limp. And second, with a changed name, Jacob has now become Israel. And then even when Jacob faltered at that point, even when he was still afraid, God was still with him and protected him from his brother Esau, more than protected him. He brought about a reunion and a reconciliation that no one could have dared hope for. Look at all the Lord has done. And all that Jacob was to do, The one point of obedience that Jacob had was to go to Bethel. You may recall well back in Genesis 28 when Jacob met the Lord. You remember the the incident with the ladder and the angels descending and ascending upon it. And Jacob was confronted with the greatness of God. And he took a vow and he said, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go... 
and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. There at Bethel, the house of God. Well, the Lord had done far more than simply give him bread to eat and clothing to wear. And Jacob was on his way back because the Lord had revealed himself to him and said, Come to me at Bethel. But Jacob stopped just a bit short. As a matter of fact, if you look at chapter 35, the first verse, Jacob had to be reminded to go to Bethel even after the incident in chapter 34. He was to go to Bethel and set up a distinct place as a part of the people of God who were separate from the dwellers of the land. So why did he stop at Shechem? I think Jacob stopped at Shechem for the same sorts of reasons that you or I come right up close to obedience to God and stop. He could rationalize it after all, couldn't he? He was close to Bethel. He was only about one day's journey away. You know what they say. That's close enough. It's like horseshoes. All I got to do is get near the peg. That's how oftentimes I, I fear that we look at obedience to God. As long as we're in the general direction. And it helps when we can look out and about and see how much better we are doing than others are. And we play that age-old game of comparing ourselves to others and being satisfied with our lack of obedience by seeing others' gross disobedience. But that's not what the Lord has called us to. But not only was it close enough, there was something in this for Jacob. There was a difference between Shechem and Bethel because Shechem was at the crossroads of two major trade routes. It was a place where business was good, where his family would be taken care of. It was economically beneficial for Jacob to do this. And it offered an end to his wandering. He could buy a piece of land. He could settle down and finally call a place home. Now, don't discount how important that would be for Jacob What land did Abraham own? A grave. What land did Isaac own? Nothing that we know of. But you see, Jacob now wants to put an end to his family's wandering and settle down. The problem is he didn't even stop to think about the danger that this presented to him. The danger of settling in with the world. And by the world here, I mean those who do not know God, who do not submit to him, who do not desire to even know him. And so Jacob is about to settle here amongst the enemies of God. Now, now let's be clear. This is not merely a matter of Jacob engaging with the culture around him, engaging with the world as an opportunity for evangelism and to be a witness and a testimony. No, this is about Jacob making Canaan his home, making the land of idols his home and place where he dwells. So, you may not be a wandering nomad. 
You may not even know a Hivite. But ask yourself a question. When you make decisions, do you consider the spiritual implications of your decisions? It seems obvious. Of course we do. We have to consider the Lord and our faith and the effect it will have on our family. And then stop and think about the major decisions in your life. The city you live in was the very first thing you thought about where I will worship. How about the college you chose? Was the very first thing you thought of how I can have Christian fellowship? How I can be encouraged? Or was it, they got a great football team. Oh, their graduation rate is dynamite. There's nothing wrong with dynamite graduation rates. There's nothing wrong with good football teams. But those are secondary considerations. And you see, Jacob has done what we too often do. He placed those secondary considerations at the forefront of his thinking. And his staying put had implications. The second thing that we see here that was a danger of mingling with the world was with his daughter, Dinah. That's how chapter 34 begins. She went out to see the women of the land. And that's where the trouble starts. Now, we don't know how long it takes for this to be a problem. It's probably at least some period of time that Jacob and his family lived here as we consider the ages of Dinah and her brothers. But I want you all to understand something. There are two main lessons from this. There's a lesson for young people and there's a lesson for parents. For you young people, Dinah goes out among the girls of the land because she's interested in who they are. They probably have fashionable clothing. I dare say that they are cool. Do we even say that now, young people? Do we even say cool? Is there another word? When I was growing up, it was cool. When my dad was growing up, I think it was hep. But whatever it is now, that's what she thought. She wanted to be in the in crowd. And whatever they call it, you all know that there is an in crowd, isn't there? There's always an in crowd. No matter how insular you are, there's an in crowd in homeschooling. There's an in crowd in church. There's an in crowd at school. And Oh, how we strive to be a part of the in crowd. And so she goes off, doesn't tell her parents. She's so sure that she knows it all. She knows exactly how to control the situation. This is perfect and this is good. And when I think about these sorts of things and a lack of asking advice of parents, I'm reminded of the story from Mark Twain, who said that when he was 14, he could not understand how anyone as dumb as his father could even get around life. And then when he turned 21, he was shocked at how much his father had learned in seven years. But you see, often that's how young people view parents. They don't understand what we're going through. We don't understand what is going on. Well, you have to understand that underneath the gray hair, and even if you can imagine more hair on the head, when your parents were younger, they had the same kinds of challenges. And believe it or not, they thought about your grandparents the same way you think about them. 
It's part of the consequences of sin, of us thinking we know everything and we're as smart as we think. But you see, Dinah isn't as smart as she thinks. She's sure this will be good. Perhaps she is tired of being around all those boys at home. We're not told of any other daughters. I'm sure there's at least a few. But she's tired of having to listen to the boys tell her what to do. All of her big brothers bossing her around. She wants to be out, be her own woman. And so she goes out. But there's something also here for parents. Because you see, Dinah does this, at least in part, because of what Jacob has done. You see, why would she think it would be safe to go out in and amongst the world? Except for what Jacob, by his actions, had said it was. After all, he had moved here. He bought property from these people. They were his neighbors. They were probably in his house. And if the rest of this chapter is is any indication, when they used foul language in his presence, he was silent. When they said bad things about the Lord, he didn't exactly call them upon it. You see, Jacob had already set up a compromising lifestyle and his kids knew it. You see, Young people may not be as smart as they think, but let me tell you something, parents. They're smarter than you think they are. They're watching. They're learning. And if it's good enough for mom and dad, then it may be pretty much just fine for me. This is the context in which Dinah goes out for a night on the town. But what she doesn't realize is that there is real danger out there. And she is attacked. And what we can tell from this is that sin is a terrible thing and it hurts people. I'm not sure a hundred years ago I would have had to say that. But today, in today's world, we are actively told that there's nothing wrong with sin. We're actively told that everything is a victimless crime. We are told by people on the left... And on the right, one of the greatest conservative movements in our day and age today is a kind of libertarianism that says anybody can do what they want to and as long as you leave them alone, no one will get hurt. Well, the Bible says that is a load of garbage. Sin affects and hurts other people. It's not just what I do that affects me. It's what I do that affects other people. We will see here by the end of the day... One man's private sin destroys an entire city. As you think about your life, your decisions, and what God says in His Word, remember always that sin is a dangerous, harmful, destructive thing. As we saw this morning in our affirmation, it is the reason for everything that is wrong and miserable. Does your back hurt right now? That's sin and its consequences. Do you have a cold? That's sin and its consequences. Are you tired? Was it hard to get up this morning? That's sin and its consequences. Do you fight with your neighbor? That's sin and its consequences. Does no one appreciate you at work? That's sin 
and its consequences. Everything that is bad in the world today is a result of sin. The next thing that we see is the way the world reacts to this sin and this attack. And we see it in two obvious ways. The first is there is absolutely no remorse. The second is that there is no fear of God to be found. Let's begin then by thinking about no remorse. Shechem attacks Dinah. And he thinks only of himself. He would be a wonderful modern American. I want you to look at verse 2 and then at verse 3. And look at the verbs. In verse 2, he saw her, he seized her, and he humiliated her. But that's not how he sees it. In verse 3, his soul was drawn to her. And he loved her. And he spoke tenderly to her. In Shechem's mind, he's doing her a favor by attacking her. That's how twisted he is. He thinks what he's doing is good. Attacking another person. He thinks it's actually a sign of love. Because you see, what he's doing is he's projecting his values upon her. His values are, I want something, I should have it. I deserve whatever I want. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter how it affects other people. And you see, that's why I think he'd be a perfect modern American. We change our values. We look at things that are obviously sin and we celebrate them. You know when you're in the grocery store. And you're in line waiting and you can't help but look at those tabloids. You know you do. I know you don't buy them and go through them, but you can't help. And I'm not talking about the the odd ones that say UFO werewolf comes down and snatches baby. That's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about these ones that deal with the celebrity culture in our society. And in big, bold, happy letters they say, Bob cheated on Janice. He's in love. Or children born out of wedlock. What a wonderful decision. You see, these sorts of things, the standards are turned upside down. This is the way the world works. And Shechem continues down this road. He's so selfish. And we see that again here in verse 4. After this has happened, he goes to his father, and no conscience at all, no problems, no difficulties caused by his actions. He turns to his dad and he says, Dad, get me that lady for my wife. And I want you to understand how callous he is. The word for get is the exact same Hebrew word for the word seized in verse 2. He wants dad to throw him a party for what he's done. Do you want to know what's really sad? Dad does. This is how far the world has fallen. In this place, generations ago, the word of the Lord was spoken. Remember that these people here are the descendants of Noah and the ark. These are not the wicked descendants of Cain. They were all wiped out. This is how far the church has fallen to not only unbelief, 
but to calling evil good. Now this action is obviously wrong, not just to us and our sensibility. The Bible tells us this. It tells us that it is an outrageous thing that is done in Israel. The language is very strong. When the sons of Jacob hear of it, they are deeply affected. And I want you to notice, don't jump ahead to their actions later. They are not only angry, but they are grieved. They are deeply upset by what has happened. And they say this is something that must not be done. You see, they have a standard of morality. And the world is trying to change it for them. You meet this challenge every day. The world is trying to change God's standard for marital relations. The world is trying to change God's standard for lying. Have you seen the statistics about how often people lie and how often students cheat in school? And the world has long gone to changing God's standard for killing. As long as it's a defenseless child in the womb, go right ahead and kill it. We celebrate it. You see, this is what the world does. And Hamor is no better than his son. This is not an isolated incident. Hamor comes in to negotiate with Jacob. He offers no apology at all. He makes no attempt to understand why Jacob or his sons would be upset. And the focus of all of this is upon himself. This would be great, wouldn't it? We could get together. Not just one marriage. Let's have all kinds of marriages. You could almost imagine, if you would, and understand the horror of this, him sitting across the table from Jacob and saying to Jacob, you know, Jacob, this might be the best thing that's ever happened to you. Because now we'll get together and we'll be one people. And think of all the money you'll make, Jacob. Think of all the stuff you'll get. By the way, think of all the status that you will get. You'll have citizenship. You can buy property. You can really settle down. There is no remorse at all. But it gets worse. There's absolutely no fear of God as well. If that weren't enough to make you sick to your stomach, and if you were Jacob, if that would not be enough to make you rise out of your seat and punch Hamor in the nose, Shechem shows that he is a chip off the old block. Notice what he says. Shechem thinks that maybe the conversation isn't, the deal isn't closing. And so he interjects here in verse 11. Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price as you want, and I will give it. Even more, I will give you whatever you ask. Now, imagine. Oh, don't worry about what's going on here. Oh, no. Let me find favor in your sight. I haven't really done anything that bad, have I? Don't you want to be my buddy? Now, that should make your blood boil. The arrogance. The complete disconnect from reality. But this is something that we face all the time. And too often, we are the Shechem's of life. 
we hurt others. And we offer apologies that go like this. Well, I'm sorry if you misunderstood me. I didn't mean to hurt you. Oh, that's good. You've hurt me, and now you've just called me stupid on top of it, that I don't know what you're doing. And that's supposed to be an apology. But isn't that too often how we apologize? You see, there's an arrogance in there that we think we are right. But you see, as we look here at Shechem, it becomes obvious to us that what he is trying to do is buy his way out. Do you try and buy forgiveness? I don't mean always with your checkbook. Now, there's the sort of humorous way we buy forgiveness, right? There are these rare, exceedingly rare occasions, right, where a husband makes his wife upset. Happens about once a decade in my house. And so what we do is after we've tried to have those initial conversations, you know what they're like, guys. You try and have that conversation, you pretend it didn't even happen. And you try and bring up something that's ordinary and normal, and you get the glare. And you think, okay, can't paper over this. All right, what can I do? Aha! I can do the laundry. I'll wash the dishes. And if I absolutely positively have to, I'll go out and buy flowers. That will make everything better. Right? You see, it's humorous, but that is built into our ability to want to solve problems ourselves. And I hate to tell you, ladies, you're no better. Because, you see, when the flowers come, you forgive. And you have your own version of that as well at home. You see, it's built up in the fabric of who we are. We think we can buy our way out of trouble. But, you see, the reality of life is is that we cannot bargain with God. We cannot come before a holy God and say, God, please forgive us if we read our Bibles, if we help others, if we write a check. If you have been doing that, you must repent of it. You must put it off. You must go to the Lord God and say, I don't deserve forgiveness. There is nothing that I have that would cause you to forgive me. There is nothing I could do to bridge this gap. It is only by the work of Jesus Christ. It is only because you have graciously chosen to forgive me in Christ. And if that is at the forefront of our thinking, think of how that will dynamically affect all of our relationships with others. We will not seek to buy forgiveness with others. We will not wait for payment from others. We will, as the scripture says, we will freely forgive even as we have been forgiven. You see, sometimes the Bible has to put it very starkly like Shechem for us to say, am I really like that at times? That's horrible. I don't want to be like that. How can I not be like that? And the questions then come to us with the only answer found in Jesus. The last thing that we see is that we're a bit more like the world than we want to admit. Everything that Hamor has told Jacob and his sons is basically a lie. You look at verse 23, he says, you know, listen guys, we should make this deal with Jacob and his family because then we'll get all their stuff. 
You can almost imagine him laughing on the side. You know, they think this is going to work out well for them, but we're going to really get all their stuff. But this is this any different than the way Jacob's sons deal with Hamor and Shechem? They have righteous anger. Something has been done that is wrong, that calls for judgment and punishment. And rather than face them face to face and say, this is wrong, you need to think about this, you need to make restitution, you must repent, you must have remorse, they say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll get together. Sure, but there's just this one small thing you have to do. And you see there's a whole plan behind the one small thing. You see, they're already nourishing murder in their hearts. They've taken justice and perverted it to vengeance. And you see, it gets completely out of control. They attack what are essentially helpless men and kill them all. And as if that weren't enough, after all of the men of the city are killed, the rest of the siblings come in behind and plunder the place. So for the actions of one man, they destroy an entire city and enslave women and children. Does that sound like Christian reconciliation? I would dare say that if we were taking a peacemaker's course, we would say this is very clearly peace-breaking. This is attempting to get their will by force. But it's no better with Jacob, is it? If they are the avengers, then he is the appeaser. There appears to be one clear driving principle in Jacob in this chapter, and that is that he's worried about himself. When he first hears of the attack, what does he do? Well, of course, he does what every good father would do. He sits on his hands and does nothing, says nothing, waits for his sons to come in. During the negotiations with Hamor and Shechem, he doesn't say a word. The sons say a word. And then after the vengeance is wrought upon the city of Shechem, he has the boldness to say, Guys, how could you possibly have done this? You've ruined my reputation. Think about that. He doesn't even confront his own sons with the wrong they have done. He's only concerned about his own reputation. He is a perfect example of a peace faker. He thinks if I'm just quiet about it, then things will resolve themselves. But you see, the reality of the world that we live in is that sin is ever-present and its consequences come home to us. And we must react in a godly way. We must stand for God's word and His truth. But we must not seek our own way and will and vengeance. We live in a dangerous world. As you go out today, there are obvious dangers. Are you trusting the Lord to carry you through those dangers? Or are you seeking to work all the angles yourself? To tell God that you have it handled? Chapter 34 is a stark warning to us. It's a warning that our decisions have consequences. And the sin around us has consequences. And the only hope that we have is not in our own devices. 
but it is in the power of God changing hearts beginning with yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would remind us that we have every hope in you. That you, O Lord, are our great protector and shield. That you, O Lord, are the just one. And that you will bring just judgment to all things. And at the same time, Lord, we are aware that we deserve judgment. And that you are not only just, but you are the justifier of the ungodly. Make us grateful, O Lord, for all that you have done for us in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.